You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine's allies meet to discuss where the ammunition will keep coming from. Assad and Syria's rebels at least have questionable priorities in common. And what are you sending, receiving or avoiding for Valentine's Day? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Olga Tokariuk and Michael Binion will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the filmmaker Guillermo del Toro about his new interpretation of the story of Pinocchio. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Olga Tokariuk, Ukraine correspondent and resident fellow at the Reuters Institute, and by Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times newspaper. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Olga, first of all, your first time uh, on the Daily. Welcome to the show. You have become a familiar voice to our listeners over the last year, if for largely regrettable reasons. But um, If you would introduce yourself to the Daily's listeners all over again. Basically, Olga, who are you and how did you get here? Hello, and thank you, Andrew, for having me. It's been a long time that I was about to come, but I never did. Um, So I'm very happy to be on the Daily for the first time today. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I used to work as a a monocle uh, freelance correspondent in Ukraine until um, September last year before moving uh, to the UK, to Oxford, to do a Reuters uh, fellowship at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And obviously, in the six months after the full-scale Russian invasion, I stayed in Ukraine and I covered it um, yeah, very frequently <laughs> for Monocle. Uh, indeed so. Uh, and Michael, uh, a very familiar voice to our <laughs> listeners, and uh, our listeners will not be aware from your, your unruffled demeanour on the air that you, you've made it in today with seconds to spare. Where were you that was so much more exciting uh, than the well, Daily's waiting room? boringly, I was at the Times, and somebody was late with his editorial, and I said, come on, come on, I need to leave now. Just send it to me. Get it over. And he did. Uh, so the, the, the joys of being an editor, I, I don't miss that, that aspect of it in the slightest. <laughs> Uh, But thank you both for joining us, and we will start the show in Brussels, where NATO and other defence ministers are gathering to discuss the situation in Ukraine. It is one year and ten days since Russia began its full-scale assault on its neighbour, and while the war has proceeded very much not according to Moscow's plans, Ukraine's survival is not yet assured, and its chances remain hugely contingent on supplies from its allies. Supplies which, according to some estimates, are beginning to run short, as more and more of the stocks of NATO nations are consumed by Ukraine's military. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has called it a race of logistics and today urged members of the alliance to ramp up support. We will meet uh, later on today in the US-led contact group uh, for uh, Ukraine and address the urgent needs uh, for uh, increased support to Ukraine. Not least the need to provide uh, more ammunition and uh, also how to ramp up 
production uh, and strengthen our defense industry to be able to uh, provide uh, the necessary uh, ammunition uh, to Ukraine and also to replenish our own uh, stocks. That was Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, speaking earlier in Brussels. Um, Olga, we will get onto the specifics of this meeting shortly, but it is, as I was saying, nearly a year into this. Um, what's your estimation of, of, of how Ukraine is holding up generally? Well, um, I think we can all agree that Ukraine is holding up pretty well and that uh, Ukraine has managed to exceed all the expectations. Mm. Well, obviously, the initial expectations that Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, last year in uh, Kherson, in Kharkiv regions, were really impressive. And I think that was that opened the way to more military support to Ukraine, to the provision of weapons which were denied initially and for which Ukrainians were asking um, for many for many months, um, but of course um, Ukraine is also um, suffering heavy losses, and in the past uh, weeks, especially, we've seen um, heavy Ukrainian losses and um, some retreats in the Donetsk region. Uh, heavy battles are going on in Bakhmut now, and the issue of having enough stocks of weapons is very crucial is important. Uh, there, there, is, uh, there are people, so the, the, there is no shortage of um, people ready to fight and uh, there is still overwhelming support in the society for the Ukrainian military, for the government, for the idea of resistance and uh, fighting back. Uh, but what is crucial is that uh, Ukrainians need, and Ukrainian military, they need to have the means to fight back, to continue fighting back and to continue not just fighting back, but also um, going on counteroffensive again and regaining uh, the territories that were occupied by Russia either in 2022, but also in 2014. Um, Michael, Jens Stoltenberg was also suggesting that NATO countries in particular are going to have to step up their defence spending, and that obviously is not going to be an insignificant commitment. Do you think a year into this, I guess European publics in particular have been somewhat insulated, and not least by the communications of their political leaders from the realities of this? Do NATO leaders need to start saying things like, we are at barely one remove at war here, and we are going to need to start thinking that way in terms of how we allocate our resources? Well, they might need to, but I'm not sure they will say that. And what they will say is that we must give more weapons to Ukraine. Uh, They've agreed in principle to give tanks, but of course this will take a long time. Mm. What they need right now is ammunition. They need uh, something that can be deployed straight away on the battlefield. And I think Western public opinion is ready to uh, agree to that. But of course, whether Western public opinion is ready to spend the extra money to replenish the ammunition and the weapons and the other things that have gone out out of their own stocks to Ukraine, well, that I'm not sure. Budgets are tight. Uh, The British Defence Ministry clearly is looking for more money, and I'm not sure that it's going to get it, because uh, there's really no new money for anything much in Britain. And I think that uh, Western public opinion is still a bit insulated from the idea that we're actually on the brink of real conflict ourselves with Russia. Well, on the subject of... uh resources and ammunition and the urgency of getting it there. We also heard today from Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of State for Defence. He says he expects Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive against Russia in the spring. And because of that, you know, we are, we, all the partners in the, in the Ukraine Defence Contact Group have been working hard to ensure that they have uh, the armoured capability 
uh, the fires, the sustainment to be able to be effective in creating the effects on the battlefield that they want to create. Lloyd Austin, U.S. Defense Secretary, speaking today in Brussels. Um, Olger, I appreciate that there probably isn't a short answer to this question, but what does Ukraine still need? Well, Ukrainian officials... um actually say answer that question quite frequently almost at every press briefing and last uh, a week president zelensky spoke about this while visiting london here in the uk and he said that of course ukraine what he came to ask for were fighter jets but mm-hmm. ukraine also needs a lot of other things ukraine needs more tanks ukraine needs more armored vehicles which might seem trivial but it is not because ukraine doesn't even have enough of armored vehicles very often the military on the uh, front line they're using civilian vehicles and you know they are suffering from landmines there are m- massive like amount of casualties because of civilian vehicles that Ukrainian military is forced to use because of shortage of the armored vehicles. Um, so, you know, uh, it's remarkable that one year into the war, even this issue is not resolved. Ukraine does not even have enough armored vehicles. Then, of course, the air defense, something that was discussed today at this uh, at the Rammstein meeting, uh, more air defense systems and uh, um, all types of uh, uh, ammunition, uh, yeah, definitely uh, Ukraine wouldn't say no to any of those, I think. Uh, Michael, on the subject of the fighter jets in particular, we seem to be doing um, a revisit of the dance that was done around the tanks. People saying, oh, we couldn't possibly, unacceptable escalation, Russia would get terribly upset, um, somebody else should do it, I don't want to, I'll do it if you do it, etc., etc. Are we basically doing the same thing with the fighter jets to the same end? Is Ukraine going to get the F-16s in particular at once? I don't think they will get them, and certainly not straight away. They may get them in the long term, but the problem is that once, even if they fly them or, or get them there, it takes quite a while before they can be used. You have mm. to train the pilots. Uh, what would be much more sensible is if, for example, Poland was able to send over its MiGs, which Ukrainian pilots are able to fly, are used to flying. They could be deployed straight away. Then the F-16s or whatever other planes that NATO could supply could fill the gaps in the Polish Air Force. Uh, sending sending Western advanced aircraft to Ukraine, it's a great idea, and Zelensky made a very impassioned plea for that in Britain. And it was received with great um, enthusiasm, but there was no actual commitment from the British government to do anything in response, apart from to say, yes, we understand your need and we will support you. And I rather fear we're getting the same response from a number of other Western countries. Just a final thought on this, Olga, and looking at this from Ukraine's perspective, When you talk about what Ukraine still needs to defend itself, which is, as you were suggesting, basically everything anybody can spare, does it still seem to Ukraine, do you think, that Russia is still at some level exercising a veto over what the West can and cannot send? There there is still, I mean, probably understandably, um, a, a concern about misjudging what Russia might perceive as a provocation too far. Well, I think it's rather the West that is, uh, you know, imposing a veto on itself. (laughs) Uh, And we've seen that on multiple occasions before, because initially Ukraine was denied even artillery systems, air defense systems, uh, tanks. And uh, 
eventually all these videos were overthrown and Ukraine started to receive or was promised that it will receive these types of weapons and then nothing happened. There was no particular you know, escalation on the Russian side, Russian response. So I think the risks of an escalation and the ability of Russia to, uh, uh, to escalate in some uh, really significant uh, manner short of nuclear are, are greatly exaggerated. So this fear that is... Uh, still pre- prevalent in the Western countries, the fear that Russia still has some uh, options that it can use to escalate in some significant manner. Well, we haven't seen that yet. So, you know, what is this fear based on if repeatedly uh, it didn't happen, all these fears didn't materialize on the previous occasions when Ukraine was given what it, it was asked for, what it asked for, but was in, denied initially because of the fear of escalation. Uh, and Michael, final, final thought uh, on this subject before we move on. Um, exciting subplot flagged by uh, Stoltenberg earlier today. Uh, some talk of strengthening the defences of Moldova. This p- follows President Maya Sandu's uh, announcement that Moscow was planning a coup d'etat uh, in Moldova, which is not beyond the realms of imagination. Uh, but as I understand it, at least... Moldova is by constitutional obligation neutral. How can NATO actually help it? Well, in the same way that it can help Ukraine, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO either. Uh, So if uh, there is a coup d'etat, well, if there is a coup d'etat, that becomes very difficult because presumably it would be a pro-Russia group Mm. that would take power. There are already Russian military units uh, all along that strange um, kind of grey zone, Transnistria, which is a strip of territory Mm -hmm. which is not really incorporated into Moldova. Uh, But if the Russians stage some sort of coup and then uh, clearly take control of Moldova, it becomes very difficult to send in weapons against the will of the so-called government, which is now in charge. Uh, It actually wouldn't make much difference because um, whatever Moldova can do, it's a pretty small country. It does Mm. have a big border with Ukraine. That's important. But uh, it wouldn't inhibit or change Western ability to supply arms to Ukraine. It would just be a sort of oddity of thinking, well, what on earth is this country now thinking of doing? Well, let's now move along, and it is a little over a week since Turkey and Syria were struck by devastating earthquakes. At least 37,000 people are now known to have died, many multiples of that injured, and still furthermore coming to terms with the loss of homes, businesses and neighbourhoods. It was always going to be the case that helping Syria would be more challenging than helping Turkey. Syria has been at war for more than a decade and is mostly governed by a regime widely regarded as a pariah. Nevertheless, some progress has today been made. Syria has agreed to open two new crossing points from Turkey into rebel-held territory. Um, Michael, first of all, this does seem like a situation where both Assad uh, and the rebel groups are equally culpable of prioritising their own concerns over those of the people who need help. Um, The rebels don't want aid that is associated with the regime and the regime does not want aid being distributed directly into rebel-held territory. Yes, I mean, it's just uh, in incomprehensible how they could take such an inhumane and absurd and criminal attitude. But in the end, I think the devastation was so dreadful. So many people uh, have been killed. So many have lost relatives that the, the groundswell of public opinion throughout 
uh, both the rebel-held territory and in the government-controlled areas, was so strong that really there was no option but to allow the United Nations to send in uh, whatever it can, uh, wherever it can. And if this means opening new crossing points, uh, they will be opened. Not for very long, though. I think there's a limit on how long they can... Three months, I think. Yes, that's right, a three-month limit, um, which suggests that they are pretty determined that um, neither side will profit from this apparent uh, relaxation uh, of the front-line combat zone. Uh, Aid may get in, one hopes it will. I don't know how much can be got to the areas in need, but um, at least Assad has been bludgeoned into some sort of common sense. Uh, Olga, does it also fall to the countries which want to help Syria to maybe suspend usual hostilities, whatever objections, quite reasonable objections they may have uh, to the regime of Bashar al-Assad? Assad. Uh, try saying that ten times quickly. Um, should governments agree to engage with the regime in a very limited sense, i.e. only on this one matter and only perhaps also for a limited time in order to get aid to the people who need it. I think it's a very fine line to walk, you know, mm. and how can you be sure that, um, first of all, I think uh, agreeing to, to do that only on this one matter, uh, it increases the legitimacy of Assad. It will give him an opportunity to boast about that and to talk about his, you know, international legitimacy that, well, the foreign governments are now talking to me, they are cooperating with me. And that, that of course, is a huge blow to all the resistance of Syrian people, you know, the that has been going on for more than 10 years. And then again, what's the, um, is there a mechanism to monitor and to ensure that this aid actually gets to people who need it, that it doesn't get stolen, that doesn't get, you know, the money doesn't get pocketed by Assad and his, and his um, you know, regime supporters? And, and then there is also an ethical question. Will people in northern Syria, for example, be willing to accept the aid that mm. is coming through the hands of their butcher? Uh, the, the rebel groups controlling that territory say very much not. But I, I, is this one of those situations, to follow that up, where you probably have to take the view that people in these sort of desperate straits probably don't much care where the shelter and the food and the blankets are coming from? Uh, well, you know, I, I think there could be maybe other options to explore how to get mm. this aid to people in northern Syria directly. And uh, uh, there are still organizations like White Helmets that has been operating in that area for many years and who have credible reputation. So is it possible to support those local organizations instead of um, somehow acting through, through, the, through Assad, through dictator? And we see on the example of Ukraine, actually, that it's very often the local organizations, not international organizations, that are the most efficient mm. on the ground. And I think it's also something that Ukrainians recognize in what is happening in Syria now and what Syrian activists from the northern part are talking about, that there is no international presence, actually. There has been no international relief uh, uh, arriving there. No international organizations are able to, to step in, were able to step in in the first days, in the first hours, when that aid was crucial to prevent um, massive deaths uh, of people. And, and something similar was happening in Ukraine and is still happening in Ukraine, that many international organizations, they just withdrew their stuff. They wouldn't go to the most dangerous areas. They wouldn't go to the areas where the heavy fighting was going on and not to the areas that were under Russian occupations. It was Ukrainian volunteers, Ukrainian charities, Ukrainian small NGOs that would go and deliver that aid. Uh, Michael, pie in the sky potential solution to this if 
some or other country or countries with sufficient military heft made it clear to both the regime and the rebels that the aid is coming in. It's coming in under armed escort and you can get out of the way or not. Yes, but don't forget that the Assad regime is backed 100% by Russia. And Russia, militarily and politically, is not in any mood to make concessions to anything Russia's, the West offers. Russia's also a bit busy now, isn't it's it? It's pretty I busy. Mean, I'm, it's I'm not, no. willing to confess I may <laughs> not have thought this all the way through. I'm just having ideas Yeah, yeah. Here. I mean, uh, one could just say, right, we're going in. But if the Russians say, no, you're not, and start dropping bombs, um, that could change the aid convoys rather a lot. Uh, I don't think Russia would be seen to be impeding humanitarian aid because they're still trying to say we're battling uh, uh, fascists in Ukraine, we're, we're fighting for freedom and this, that, and the other, whatever their propaganda message is. And if they're stopping aid getting to an earthquake zone by denying Western convoys, that clearly doesn't look good for them. But on the other hand, I think the West has got to realize that they're the ones that actually have military control over that whole region. Well, let's now... Uh undertake a seamless gear change from that to the very definition of first world problems. Motorists in one Berlin neighbourhood are about to be presented with real reason to complain that there is nowhere to park. In Greifekiet this summer, there will be nowhere to park. Local burgers are planning to temporarily suspend almost all parking spaces in a bid to persuade people to leave their cars at home and to have a bit of a think about what a substantially car-free life might feel like. This has inevitably prompted an immense row currently echoed in several other jurisdictions where angry dingbats on social media have persuaded themselves that ideas for making urban areas more amenable to walking are a conspiracy to imprison us by the shape-shifting lizards from a parallel dimension who furtively manipulate human destiny. I shouldn't have said that out loud, should I? The cat's out of the bag. Um, (laughs) Olga, first of all, are you in general a a fan of this idea, I mean suspending parking, not shape-shifting lizards, secretly manipulating human destiny? Well, as a person who doesn't really drive a lot, I think I'm a supporter of um, areas free of traffic. Yeah, I'm going to declare my own vested interest on that one as well. (laughs) I I live in such a neighborhood in Oxford and I'm, you know, witnessing all these constant fights between neighbors who support the limited traffic neighborhood and those who oppose and it's really, it's almost coming to battles in real life, not just online. Um, I mean, having come from where you've come from, how difficult is it to take that particular squabble seriously? Well, as you said, yeah, it might seem like a first world problem. But again, you know, now we are thinking in Ukraine, people are thinking how to rebuild and how to make Mm -hmm. our cities more livable. And in Kyiv, for example, in Ukraine's capital, this chaotic parking was and is a huge problem. Now, maybe less because there are less people in Kyiv. Some of them fled, like myself and have not returned yet. Uh, But we'll have to address this problem at some point. So, yeah, it might seem, of course, from the Ukrainian perspective at this time as a first world problem, but we are also very keen... Uh, to, you know, uh, uh, have it as our problem in the future. We won't have any other problems. Um, Michael, it it, it is the case, though, isn't it, that any urban environment... environment anywhere Uh, urban environment anywhere I should be able to pronounce phrases like that it's only Tuesday Um, should be trying to think of ways gently or otherwise to discourage motor traffic shouldn't it? Yes, I mean Berlin is probably in a better position than most places. First of all a lot of people live quite close to their work Mm -hmm. and they can cycle. There's also uh, a very good public transport system, extremely good metro and they've got uh, the uh, S-Bahn which is on the 
the surface, very good transport, buses and everything. Imagine if they did the same thing in Los Angeles. I mean, what on earth would happen? Nobody would be able to get to work at all. Uh, and, and people would literally starve to death. Well, they, would, they wouldn't be able to no food. They couldn't, get, you know, they couldn't get anywhere near anything they needed to get to. Um, it does depend slightly on the city and on the way of life. And uh, those cities that are quite compact, that have a tradition of people living locally, and in fact that have good public transport, they can do it. They can do a bit more of it. What becomes a bit ridiculous is when local councils, as has happened in Britain during the pandemic, suddenly decide that they're going to encourage cycling, so they close off all the streets. Mm -hmm. And in fact, then nobody can get anywhere because the cars uh, need to get to, um, well, they need to get somewhere, and so do emergency vehicles and delivery vehicles and things of this kind, and they simply can't get into these areas that have been closed off uh, only for cycling. Uh, and a lot of people are beginning to think, well, is that really the right way to do it? I think what's interesting is that Berlin is having only an experiment. It's not a permanent closure. Mm, it's not yet, anyway. trying it out to see how it works. And if it works well, then there's no reason not to introduce something similar. Perhaps it's a bit draconian, but you could certainly try to limit the number of cars and in encourage public transport. Hey, Olga, when instituting measures like this, though, do, do you have to be careful about how it lands with motorists because there's a line isn't there between discouraging them in the interests of improving the urban environment and just appearing to be vindictive and beating up on people for being motorists yeah well absolutely you know one of the arguments of people who are against this limited traffic neighborhoods are that um, the local businesses are suffering because people are unable to come to the, their favorite cafe to their favorite shop because of these restrictions and it's uncomfortable for them to use the bus or cycle or other means of transport or walk although I'm actually walking now probably more than I ever did in my life <laughs> I'm setting my own <laughs> records every day there you go it works <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cycling because I'm Frankly, I'm a bit afraid of cycling in the city. I'm coming from the environment where cycling in the city is really very rare and very dangerous. So I still can't get, you know, accept the idea that it's actually safe and you can do it. So I'm walking a lot. Uh, and also why I'm walking a lot is because the public transport, I'm not really happy of, you know, how it functions. It's expensive. It's not always reliable. It doesn't go where I want to go. So I think all these issues should be also solved before closing, you know, the streets and restricting the, uh, the motor traffic. I mean, it's it's not what is being proposed necessarily in Berlin, though it is a thing that is increasingly happening in Berlin and other big cities, uh, Michael. And just to close on this, this is the idea of just where possible pedestrianising uh, downtown boulevards. Uh, we are broadcasting not far from, I think probably the least pleasant main shopping street in Europe, uh, if not the world, i.e. Oxford Street. There has been talk about this for as long as I've been living in London, which is a frightening span of time now. <laughs> Should at some point whoever is mayor of London just say, look, we're doing it. We're pedestrianising Oxford they Street. They might. I mean, bits of London have already been pedestrianised mm -hmm. with no real problem. I mean, Trafalgar Square, it's not completely traffic-free. There are bits uh, where there are buses and cars and things go whizzing around, but bits of it have been cordoned off, and it's much nicer. And, in fact, people do find ways of getting around these blockages. I mean, motorists find ways. And where there have been pedestrian uh, closures, and, in fact, a lot of Soho during the COVID, instead of having streets full of cars, they put restaurant tables all down the streets it so that people... In, was entirely pleasant. It was lovely, and lots of people enjoyed it. And uh, mind you, not quite so successful in the middle of winter. But uh, <laughs> that's an idea that may come back again, simply because people liked it and businesses liked it.
Well, on the subject of people dining out, and thank you, Michael, for that seamless segue, today, (laughs) February 14th, is Valentine's Day, and a big hello to everyone who is listening to this prior to resignedly submitting themselves to an overpriced meal in a mid-market restaurant, surrounded by other couples who were unable to admit to themselves or each other that they would rather be doing literally anything else. By way of celebrating the calendar's third most irritating holiday after Halloween and Christmas, the National Records Office of Scotland has published the intimate correspondence of James Maitland Balfour, MP for Haddington, circa 1843, to his fiancée, Lady Blanche Cecil. One of their sons, Arthur, would become Prime Minister. Here is a snippet of Balfour's wooing, rendered as he never expected it would be, by Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. My dearest Lady Blanche, I cannot leave town with no chance of seeing you again for many months without doing that which must either make me the happiest or most wretched of men. Oh, Lady Blanche, I love you deeply, fervently, and oh, how happy should I be if I could only hope that that love was returned. You must have seen what are my feelings towards you. If, however, this is not the case and you cannot hold out any hopes to me, I must resign myself to my fate. But my most fervent prayer will be for your happiness and the hours I have spent with you will be looked back upon as the brightest of my life. Yours most truly and devotedly, J.M. Balfour. Monocle 24's own Barry White, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, voicing the love letter of James Maitland Balfour, MP. Well, uh, first of all, Michael and Olga, how many cards did we all get today? I didn't get any, but oh. I wouldn't mind getting a message from Fernando. <laughs> <those dulcet tones. laughs> that, that, that can be arranged, Michael. We'll, has, we'll, we'll come yes, back on the to way that. out, maybe. He has a clear new job lined up, and a very I, profitable he, one. He should set up an account on Cameo, shouldn't he? Yes. make a fortune. No, um, I, think, uh, I think one gets to a point where somehow the cards don't come flowing in anymore, no. uh, sadly. But, um, well, who knows? I might get one. I mean, the point of Valentine cards is they're meant to be anonymous. Mm. They're meant to be from somebody you've never seen and you know a secret admirer uh, has you in their sights. That's sort of a fine line between charming and creepy. Just well, there, it, yeah, exactly. There. And I think nowadays everybody knows who sent them these various cards. I mean, that that is a most beautiful message. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is extraordinary that if he's so deeply in love, he still calls her Lady Blanche. I mean, rather than just, you know, Blanche <laughs> old girl or whatever. It was the 1840s, Michael. Yes, it, it was. was. A more still you doubtless remember it well. Uh, politeness. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I remember something fairly similar. <laughs> um, uh, Olga, were you in any danger of dislocating your post off, your post person's shoulder this morning? <laughs> no, not really. In fact, I received a digital postcard from my husband who is in Ukraine. Okay. So well, I mean, it's a bit he, sad he, to be I, separated. I mean, on this that's, day. It's, it's understandable that the the postal routes were not to be trusted just at the moment. Yeah. Um, is is Valentine's Day actually a big deal in Ukraine? It is much bigger deal than here. Really? Yeah. Like all the shops would, you know, have all the Valentine themed uh, displays. I think immediately after the Christmas, <laughs> and, and you will see a lot of men and young boys with flowers on the streets of Kyiv in this day. So it's it's still very much perceived in this traditional, you know, manner that women are expecting flowers and men are expected to to deliver. Mm, so, 
yeah, but it, it's really different, of course, this year. And my mm. friends who are in Kiev, they are saying that you, you do not feel this. There is no this festive mood. And I think those couples who are still together, they really feel very privileged because there are so many couples who are separated. Uh, Michael, in this country, does it strike you that Valentine's has become sort of a, a meta-phenomenon, that people are participating in it but not really participating in it, a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest? Yes, it's it's never been a massive thing here, and uh, it does come uh, after Christmas, quite soon after Christmas, before Easter. Okay, the shops love it because it's just yet another thing to plug their wares with, and, and you know, out they all come, the hearts and bunnies and cards and goodness knows what you... <laughs> uh, it's commercialised. And also, one's not quite sure what the point is. It's a good chance for restaurants to suddenly open their doors and say, come on in, special meal. But of course, nowadays, special meal at twice the price of last year's special <laughs> meals. So I'm not sure that it really has caught on in a big way here. Well, on that heartwarming note, Michael Binion and Olga Takariuk, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, on today's show, Guillermo del Toro is known for movies underpinned by a sense of the mythic and filled with ghosts and monsters. His most recent, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, is an intricate stop-motion retelling of the familiar story. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs caught up with the Mexican filmmaker. She asked him whether this new film helps him answer some of the questions about humanity and mortality that his work has long been asking. For me, the summation of my 58 years in this world is what happens, happens, and then we're gone, which is a very simple way of putting... It gives you humility to know that. You know, it gives you a very cosmic humility because we're very brief and very inconsequential. When I talk to friends, they say this or that, and I say, look, we didn't invent the world. We're not going to solve it. We, we can just hold it for a little while and try to make it slightly more uh, sort of comprehensible. So if, when I think about my questions in doing Kronos, the final image of Kronos is a child standing by the bed of the father figure dying while the sun pours through the window, which is exactly the final scene in Pinocchio before the coda at the end. And the matter of Kronos is immortality is not desirable. Mortality is, which is Pinocchio. So I think somebody said, I, I think it was Jean Renoir's father. He said, uh, a painter paints the same three all his life. And I think that's true. We pursue not many questions, but one. And I've been thinking about death since I was seven. And I think I've come to a conclusion. It doesn't have to be a conclusion everybody agrees with, but this is, is imbued in Pinocchio. You've been thinking about death since you were seven. Yes. There's so much in this film that kind of relates to your childhood, both you watching Pinocchio and also the animation, which I'll get onto in a moment. In that space of time, between then and now this film coming out, what has your work in cinema and all these other films you've made, how has that shaped you and shaped what this film has become, but really how you think about cinema? The thing is, uh, I believe that we exist in a cultural wave and the wave passes you by and moves to the beach and another wave comes with the next generation. I think I'm nearing the beach. So I understand that some of the culture that will come in the next few years belongs already to the next generation, and I'm very much at peace with that. I have enjoyed being part of the art for a few decades, and I'm grateful for that. 
and I now take it more personally than ever because I have the possibility of having 12 movies that talk to each other as opposed to when you go at it for the first time and people try to define who you are by one, two, or three movies, you know? Now they have a dialogue. Pinocchio talks to Kronos, Pinocchio talks to Devil's Backbone, Pinocchio talks to Hellboy, to Shape of Water. That is, you realize that uh, as you go past your third decade as a filmmaker, you now have created an autobiography of the soul. I am very much my characters. I'm the girl in Pan's Labyrinth. I'm Hellboy. I'm Sally Hawkins in Shape of Water. I'm uh, the grandfather in Kronos. I'm all, all of these characters. So, you know, I take it very seriously. I've never approached filmmaking as something to make a living. I have never made a movie just to make it. I always, even the most commercial ones like Blade Two or Hellboy or Pacific Rim, I take them very, very personal. Even in Blade Two, there is a, a very poignant tale about a father and a son in the middle of it, or two fathers and two sons. So, you know, I think we're coming into a moment of serenity. Is that a serenity you can see your complete picture when you look at all of these films, that every part of you is there in, in a different way yeah. if you look at them all together? Yeah, I think, look, if, if you see the movies, all of them together, you pretty much are having a dialogue with me. I don't think that we can answer or question everything we question in life through a body of work. But I think that it's something I'm producing new filmmakers, and I like uh, staying sort of interested that way, watching new films, uh, promoting new films, creating things for the next generation to use. So I see my work as expansive, as opposed to reducing. I am not in a solipsistic mind. I'm about making it about others. I'm producer and showcasing other people's work. So that's changing to more and more I do that. And more and more I think that's the key to happiness. Uh, the key to happiness is not you, is the others. You know how it was Sartre that says hell is the others? Heaven is the others too. So I think it's, so it's, I'm in that moment. That was Guillermo del Toro speaking to Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and you can hear Sophie's full interview with him on the latest episode of Monocle on Culture. That's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Olga Tokariuk and Michael Binion. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.